we're in Mark chapter 2 tonight. Great to be with you. How are you guys doing? All right, let, let, let me hear, let me hear something. All right, good. All right. All right, because, you know, it's, it's nice. It's nice to hear you guys uh, in worship, in teaching, uh, responding to the truth of God's word. And so don't hold back, all right? Uh, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to jump into this study. And Father, we thank you so much for this uh, beautiful gospel account. Last week we just uh, reflected on how it is like a, a work of art, absolutely beautiful in, in describing and displaying your son. And we pray tonight that you would reveal, a, re- reveal him to us, that we would, this is our prayer, Father, that we would see Jesus. And so tonight we pray that you'd give us eyes to see, that you'd give us ears to hear, that you'd give us a heart that is open and receptive. And, and truly, God, we pray tonight that if, in fact, our hearts aren't as open as they should be, that, God, by grace, you would work a miracle. And that you would bring the softening. You would, God, bring the, the openness to our hearts that we need. And, and, Father, we pray that you would cause your word to fly like an arrow directly to our hearts with power tonight. And that we would leave this place transformed and changed because we've come face to face with your son. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, tonight, the, me- the title of the message is Jesus the Original Rebel. And, and really, he is. Like, if you want to talk about being a, a revolutionary, uh, really, you don't have to look any further than the person of Christ And uh, tonight what we're going to see as we go through this chapter, it's not a long chapter, we're going to do our best to get through the whole chapter tonight. Um, We're going to see that Christ was criticized in four very uh, specific ways. And and tonight, you know, the application for us is going to be that if you choose to live the way of Jesus, you will be criticized in these ways as well. You know, Jesus obviously, excuse me. He rolled differently than the religious leaders. Uh, in fact, like I said, you know, really as we reflect on history, you know, we, we could call him uh, the original rebel, but really he, by the religious leaders, was framed as a, a rebel because he confronted this religious establishment that had gotten so far off track. The lifestyle of Christ, uh, the things that he taught, the way he treated people did not align with their traditions. And so what you're going to see in this gospel account, as you see with the other gospel accounts, is that Christ is in con- continual conflict. Whether it's the Pharisees or the Herodians or the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin as a, as a governing body uh, there in Israel, he always seemed to be butting heads with these individuals. And I think, you know, obviously there are many reasons for that. I was talking with somebody uh, just yesterday, had lunch with a friend, and, and we were talking about the reason that Jesus was crucified by the religious leaders. And there is a portion of scripture, there's a verse that says that they handed him over because of envy. They envied what he had with the people, and what he had with the people really did threaten their ability to maintain control and power over people. It threatened their religious institution. Uh, and so he was, he was criticized and ultimately crucified for that. Uh, and if you choose to follow, to, to follow his way of life, you'll be criticized for these things as well. The Bible says in verse 1, and again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. This is where I make a really stupid uh, kind of rap-like joke about Jesus being in the house. But I've made it so many times with you guys, I'm not going to make it uh, again tonight. Oh, well, no, I won't. Immediately, I will not be tempted into that joke. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. I mentioned to you uh, a couple of weeks ago that Capernaum was the most significant city in the Galilee. Uh, and of course, this was where Jesus really headquartered, headquartered his ministry. There was a particular house. We don't necessarily know whose house this was, but what made the house special was that Jesus was in it. Um, and I know this is like uh, not a, a one-for-one interpretation tonight, but I want to ask you, is Jesus in your house? 
Is Jesus in your house? Is your house a consecrated place? Is your house a house of peace? Is, the, is your house a home where the presence of Christ dwells? Well, Jesus, obviously, at this point in time, had become so popular that there were many people that were crammed into this, probably not, you know, necessarily large home, but there were so many people in it that you couldn't even get inside any longer. Probably, if you know, you rolled it up to this house, there were people partially falling out the window and people trying to, you know, get their way in through the door, but really it was just packed. And what was he doing on the inside? Well, the Bible says he preached the word to them. I, I mentioned to you last week as we were talking about signs and wonders and miracles, and I, I may mention this again in just a minute, the signs and wonders and miracles that Jesus did always uh, were supplying the evidence that what he was saying was from God. Uh, it was, you know, in a sense, providing the proof that what he was declaring was from uh, the Father. And, and, and yet, we need to remember that the preaching of the word, while we're thankful that God works miracles, and let me tell you tonight, the same God that worked miracles 2,000 years ago is the same God that works miracles today. And, and in all of that, while we're thankful for the miracle, we remember that the preeminence, the priority is always given to the preaching of God's word. This was what he did. You know, he was declaring to them the kingdom of God, and fundamentally, these folks were gathered together to hear the words that he spoke. I do wish, I was reading through this today, and I was thinking, man, wouldn't it be so amazing to have a transcript of the sermon that he preached that day? You know, what a, what a, and, and maybe heaven will be like that. Maybe we'll be able to say, hey, Jesus, you remember in Mark chapter 2 when you, were, when you were hanging in the house? Jesus was in the house. There it is for you. Tonight I couldn't help myself. And, and you know, it wasn't fully disclosed what you said. You know, could you like, could you repeat the message? Or is there a place where I can go get the archive of that? And, and maybe the answer will be yes, and that will be amazing. Uh, but what's, what stood out to Mark, obviously not in the sense that... Um, the preaching of the word was insignificant, but there was a point he was going to make here was this marvelous event. As he is preaching his sermon and declaring the kingdom of God, revealing God to the people, the Bible says in verse 3, then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was so when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And we talked about this a lot, right, over the course of years. Uh, what an amazing scene this must have been, right? I mean, absolute, you know, when Jesus is preaching, you know, for you old people, it's like an E.F. Hutton moment. Everyone's leaning in, is total silence, every single word, right? Liquid gold dripping from his mouth, being pulled in by the people, just the honey of God's word. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's this clamoring. And then there's this scraping and there's this scratching and pretty soon, right, you know, in the main room of the home, dust and dirt and, and all sorts of other materials begin to fall down because, because roofs in those days were made of mud and um, all sorts of things like branches and leaves and twigs all kind of compiled together. And so all of this stuff begins to fall there on the floor and then light, a beam of light begins to uh, fall from the roof onto the floor as well. And pretty soon what you see is this paralytic man being lowered by his four friends to the very feet of Jesus. I mean, that would be, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Like right in the middle of a Bible study, I'm just saying. Like, you know, here we are having a Bible study tonight, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's a sound of a, a circular saw or something like that. You know, a saw's all, and, and pretty soon a big square falls uh, right there. Hopefully not on your head, but, but and, th and then there's this, there's this dude that's lowered down, and, and uh, what a picture this must have been. As these friends recognized the, the need of their friend. And they did, they did the thing that good friends do. They brought their needy friend to Jesus. Do you, do you bring your needy friends to Jesus? You know, maybe today you were having a minute with a friend and they were just pouring their heart out, you know, and there were all these difficulties and tra tragedies and crises that they're walking through. And, you know, you were faithful to listen 
and then you wrapped it up with a, hey, bro, well, love you, man. I hope your day gets better and your life is good. And you just went on your merry way. That for sure is not how we ought to be uh, living our lives as friends, right? I mean, what we, what we ought to do is we listen intently. We consider what's being said. We share maybe a word from the word to supply the, the guidance or the encouragement or the strength that that person needs in the moment. And then we do the most important thing, we pray. We pray and bring them to Jesus. You know, I think a lot of times what we have the tendency to do is when we hear a need from our friend, we say something like, hey, man, I'll pray for you. And don't get me wrong tonight. I mean, that's not, it's not a bad thing to say as long as you do pray. As long as you do pray, it is a good thing to say. Um, it is not a good thing to say if you choose not to pray, right? You go on your merry way, and pretty soon you find yourself all distracted by the many things that you're dealing with in your own life. And, you know, you're not even cognizant of that need again until the friend comes back and says, hey, man, have you been praying for me? And now you're stuck, Right now you're really stuck because what, what do you say? I mean, hopefully you're honest and you're like, dude, I am such a loser. And so forgive me for being a loser. I totally forgot. Let's handle it the right way and let's pray right now. You know, I've found in life that as a friend, the best thing to do when someone that you love is struggling is to pray for them right there in the moment. I totally appreciate, you know, so many things about these friends um, but, you know, one thing for sure, two things tonight, one is that they brought their friend to Jesus. One thing, the second thing is this, that they were willing to break through the obstacle. There was an obstacle. They couldn't get him through the front door. They couldn't get him through a window. And so they found their way up onto the roof, and they worked hard to break through. There was no obstacle that was too great. And that, I do believe, uh, truly was a demonstration of their love. Sometimes I think in our culture, as Christians, we're like snowflakes. You know, we melt when things heat up. We're, we're, we, we, we have the no, noble idea of serving and loving people and going the extra mile. We want to be the individual who loves people enough to see them through until the victory comes. And yet sometimes what happens is, you know, things get a little hot. There might be a little adversity. There are some obstacles and trials along the way. And instead of really fighting for the breakthrough, we find ourselves, we find ourselves falling backwards and kind of melting under the heat. I pray tonight that our love for people would be so strong that we would see them through the difficulty, the adversity, the obstacle until the victory is realized. And that for sure is what happens here. The Bible says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, so notice obviously it's plural, it's their faith, maybe um, the friends and just the friends, or maybe the four friends and the paralytic. It's not necessarily clear. I think it would be fair to say all of them. But notice this, they, they all had faith that he was able to do what they were hoping he would do. Listen, what did they hope he would do? Heal him, right? This was the expectation. They've heard the stories. They know that he's able to touch that friend. And in a moment, that paralytic could get up and rise on his own two feet and walk out. And yet Jesus says something so counterintuitive to them. He says this, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Son, your sins are forgiven you. I, you know, I wonder if in that moment some of them were thinking, wait a minute, you know, we didn't bring him here for that. Like, hey, we appreciate that. Don't, don't get us wrong. You know, thank you very much. But, but we did not go through all of this difficulty for you to say to him, son, your sins are forgiven. We went through all this adversity and difficulty so that, so that you would do the physical healing. And yet remember, Jesus knew what the root issue in this man's life was. Right? Jesus always knows best. There are some commentators who connect this uh, physical issue that this man was struggling with, with potentially some life-besetting sin years earlier in his life. In fact, some would say, you know, knowing that in ancient culture, syphilis in its extreme, you know, form oftentimes caused paralysis. 
And so while Jesus could have in the moment just healed the issue that was on the outside that seemed to be the real problem, what he did is instead he went to the core issue. He went right to the heart of the matter. Jesus knew that what this man needed was not just the physical healing, but he needed the spiritual healing as well. Sometimes I think people approach God um, almost as if he's just this celestial Santa Claus, you know, um, this, uh, this celestial jukebox where it's like you, you put in a prayer and, 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 you know, you select what you want and, and you, you know, you hope that you get that. Almost as if, you know, we have this, this consumer-oriented relationship with God where he's just present to provide those particular things that we need. How many times have you prayed and the answer to your prayer was different than what you expected? And, you know, in the process of that, you realized after you got through the frustration, right, you know, after you got through the disillusionment, you're like, wait a minute, God, this isn't what I asked for. This wasn't what I wanted. And then as you, you know, you settle yourself in prayer before the Father and he works on your heart and pretty soon what you recognize was the answer was, in fact, exactly what you needed. I mean, to the extent sometimes that, you know, I'm sure there are things that you have prayed for in your life that you are thankful that God did not answer. Do you have any of those prayers where it was like, man, you, you thought you knew what the issue was, but the reality was it was something totally different. Jesus says something here that for sure was not only a surprise to the friends, it may have been in that, you know, immediate moment, a real surprise to the paralytic man, man. And it was absolutely a shock to the scribes that were there gathered in the house. Uh, there were religious leaders that were sitting in that house, and they were present to hear the teaching of Jesus, not because they wanted to learn what he had to say. They were looking for an opportunity to criticize him. The Bible says in verse 6, and some of the scribes were sitting there, and reasoning in their hearts. So, you know, they're not having a dialogue with each other. Um, they're all pretty much probably thinking the same thing because it wasn't just one scribe. And, and, and there, you know, there is this internal questioning that's happening on the inside that's not exposed on the outside. Of course, they thought they could get away with thinking these thoughts to themselves, not realizing that Jesus, in fact, knew the very things that they were thinking and so verse 7 says why this was what they were reasoning. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Man, wouldn't that have been like disturbing in that moment? You're like, oh, oh man, he totally called him out, Right? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins. Do you know that tonight? That he has power on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And here's the word, immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So they got this, you know, big argument that's happening in their minds, and they're thinking, who does this guy think he is? Like, I can't believe the audacity of this man to say that he is able to forgive sins, because there's only one, and they were right in this, there's only one who is able to forgive sins, and that is God. And so in their reasoning, um, as they are just perceiving him, Jesus, to be like any other man, they believe that he has committed the sin of blasphemy, putting himself in the place of God. And yet what they didn't realize was he is able to forgive sins because he is God, right? What they said was true. David said this when he was convicted uh, of his sin against Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba. He said this in that moment of repentance to God against you and you alone have I sinned. God said this to his people in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. Listen, from a biblical perspective, they were absolutely right. 
that only God has the authority to forgive sin. But what they didn't recognize was that Jesus himself was God. And so he says to them, he just kind of sets them up, right? He's like, why are you reasoning about these things? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? Well, obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you because there doesn't need to be any outward proof of the power, right? You can just say those words and there doesn't really need to be necessarily some demonstration of the authority of the words that are spoken, and yet, on the other hand, if you say, arise, take up your bed and walk, I mean, that, that really is a harder thing to say because it demands immediate proof of the power of the words that were spoken. And so what does he do? He does what we said he used miracles for. He says this to the man, and immediately the man is healed of his disease. And he did this because he wanted them to know that he, as the Son of Man, had the power to forgive people of their sins. There are power, there is power in the words of Jesus Christ. Hey, tonight, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, it's not your religious works, it's not your church attendance, it's not because you bought somebody a cup of coffee, and, and, and in that somehow, you know, because you, your good works are outweighing your bad works, that the favor of God rests upon you. There, this is an exclusive message. There is only one way for your sins to be forgiven, and that is through trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Christ was criticized because he made himself exclusively the means through which a person could be forgiven of their sins. And tonight I want to say to you, don't shrink back from that message. Don't shrink back from the exclusivity of that message. The truth is this. It is inclusive in the sense that all are, are, are free to come. The opportunity to be forgiven of your sins is available to anyone. He will in no way turn away those who come to him in faith. And yet we know that the only way, this is the exclusive element, the only way to be forgiven of your sins is to trust in him. The result of this is this guy gets up and they're all amazed. They say, we've never seen anything like this before. And they glorified God. The final thing I want to encourage us with tonight is this. In all that we do for the Lord, let's make sure we do it in a way so that he gets the glory. You know, we don't want to admit this a lot of times, but all of us, all of us, you know, when we're in the flesh and when we're living selfish lives, we want the glory, right? I mean, we want, we want the accolades. We want to be lifted up. We want the pat on the back. We want the affirmation. We want eyes to be drawn to us. But when we are serving God, we want to serve God in a way where just like John the Baptist said, we decrease so that he might increase. We kind of shrink back in a way where we're unseen, just in the background, and he ultimately is exalted. The second way that he was criticized was, was this. He was criticized for associating with the wrong crowd. Verse 13 says, Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, that is Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. So this Levi, of course, is Matthew. Matthew, uh, the Matthew we're talking about is the one who is responsible for writing the first gospel account in the New Testament. Um, he was, in fact, a tax collector. He was a tax collector in a city that was the center of commerce. It was the center of trade. If you were traveling from Europe or if you were traveling from the east, from the north to the south, you would have had to make your way in this. You went by the, the, the King's Road that was by the sea. You would have had to have made your way uh, through Capernaum. And so the Romans had set up all of these tax offices along the way. If you're bringing your goods to trade or to barter, you've got wine or you've got wheat or you've got olives or something else, spices maybe, you would have had to have stopped at this tax office and you would have had to have paid your taxes. And so what this means for Matthew was this, he was really wealthy. He was a very wealth, wealthy Jewish individual who was probably not just making money because he was working for the Roman government, but he was probably making more money uh, because he was oftentimes charging more taxes than the people really needed to pay. Um, you know, the modern equivalent of that is based in three letters. It's I R. 
S. So, so we don't have any IRS uh, officers here tonight, do we? Uh, by the way, that happened to me before, man. I gave the IRS a hard time in a service one time, and, and um, I went to, to a Thai restaurant, to Archie's afterwards, and, and there was a group of people having lunch, and they're like, hey, Pastor Derek, come over here, and I walked over, and and uh, he's like, hey, 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 man, I just want to introduce myself. My name is so-and-so. And then he pulled his wallet out, opened it up, and he had an IRS badge. And I'm like, bro, I love you, man. I just, I'm paying for your lunch today, all right? I did not pay for his lunch. I mean, I have already paid for his lunch. No, I'm sorry. I'm t- <laughs> just, that's, that's like side, sidetracked, sorry. So listen, this is a big deal, all right, because I want you to understand some of these people, or some people here tonight might, might not know, like if you were a tax collector in this time, like I said, he was wealthy, he was Jewish, he was also considered a traitor because he was working for the Roman government. Remember, Jews during the time of Christ, were, they were not living in this great, you know, moment of the history of Israel. It was very, very difficult because the Roman uh, Empire had subjugated the Jewish people, right? They had gone in, they'd invaded their land, and they had subjugated them very brutally. Remember, Daniel describes the Roman Empire as just this horrendous beast, and for sure it was. And so this Jewish individual had committed the highest type of treason, He was totally a traitor, and because he was a traitor, he was absolutely marginalized. I mean, probably sitting at this table, you know, surrounded by money, but not surrounded by friends. No one wanted to be Matthew's friend. No one had any interest in him, and and we're going to see in a minute, the people that he hung out with were marginalized as well. Jesus walks by, he does something that I'm sure uh, surprised Everybody around him, especially those fishermen who were following him as disciples, he says to Matthew, this trader, this tax collector who's working for the Roman IRS, he says to him, follow me. And Matthew, you know, interestingly enough, Matthew does something that is just so profound, I think it's easy for us just to pass over it. The Bible says he arose and he followed him. Right? I mean, there must have been a work of God in Matthew's heart where he was recognizing how far he had drifted from God. How insufficient all of these resources were to satisfy that deep need that he had within his heart. All of the, di- the different ways, right? the less than ethical ways that he had adopted to try to amass for himself this lifestyle, this lavish lifestyle that he thought would satisfy his soul and bring him purpose. I mean, the fascinating thing is this, is here Matthew is sitting and he really does, in a way, have a lot of the things that the world will say would make you happy. And he was an empty man. He was an empty man. And so when Jesus spoke to him and invited him, listen, it was The word immediately is not here, but the implication is clear. He got up and walked away from it all. You know, maybe tonight, uh, here you sit and you, you know, you've heard the gospel, you've come to church. You know, you know because you're so familiar with the message of the gospel, you know what it means to follow Christ. It means that you leave the world behind and you follow him 100% all in. And yet, you know there's something in your life that has hindered you, it's kept you from really being all in for Jesus, really making that step where you choose to follow him with all of your heart. Uh, I want to encourage you tonight to follow the example of Matthew because you you will be a disappointed, disillusioned person until you choose to leave it all behind and follow after the Lord. He gets up, he follows the Lord, and then the Bible says he invites him over for a meal. The Bible says in verse 15, now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees, here we have the religious elite that represent the institution, and when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, man, this is awesome. We love how accepting he is of people. We want to be more like Jesus. No, they they say, how is it, right? Just the voice of criticism. 
how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not call, come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So Levi does something that, you know, I think um, just really does represent how approachable Jesus was. He invites Jesus over to his house. He, he calls all of his friends, right? All of the crew that he is regularly running with and hanging with. I mean, these were the marginalized people. These were the people that the religious elites looked down their self-righteous noses at. These are the people who aren't welcome in the synagogue. These are the people who probably can't uh, attend a sacrifice in the temple. These are the people who are criticized and, and ridiculed. Kind of those who have been considered outcasts in the community. And here we find Jesus sitting in the midst of them, accepting them. Listen, I'm not saying he accepted their lifestyle, but he embraced them. You know, he was an approachable individual to the extent where Levi was willing to invite him to his home and then invite all of his friends to come and to hear. To come and to hear about the kingdom of God. I want to remind all of us tonight that Jesus goes after everybody. He goes after everybody, especially those who are despised and rejected. It's a, a kind of a sad thing to say, but there are times where I think, man, Lord, who are you really desiring to reach in the culture today? And my way of discerning that is to look at who the church is rejecting. Because if you look at who the church rejects, those typically are the people that God is going after. God help us. God help us to not be like the Pharisees and the scribes. He was present in the midst. He was loving them. He was being a light to them. He was sharing the kingdom with them. You know, years ago, this was maybe, uh, I'd been saved for two years. I went back to uh, the town I grew up in. I was in a friend's wedding. And we were sitting at the... We were sitting at the, uh, the table at the reception, everyone who was in the wedding, and I was talking to my friend, you know, and my life had totally changed, right? Everyone's drinking, there's crazy stuff going on, and, and my friend's like, well, why aren't you doing this anymore? And I'm like, well, I, I gave my life to Jesus. He's like, well, I, you know, I hang with Jesus too. And I'm like, that's great. He's like, yeah, I go to this, this um, organization, I'm not going to say the name of it tonight, um, and it's awesome, man. We drink and we play cards because that's what Jesus did, right? We get drunk because the Bible teaches that Jesus hung out with sinners and, and he played cards and he drank and he got drunk and he partied. And I'm like, dude, what Bible are you reading, right? <laughs> what Bible are you reading? Like, how dare you hijack his expression of love? You know, how dare you confuse, you know, the, the, the lifestyle of righteousness that he had in the midst of a moment where he was demonstrating acceptance and love to those around him. Listen, Jesus wasn't just hanging out and partying and, 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 and smoking dope with these guys, right? He was being a light. He was conveying the kingdom of God. The Bible says that we are to be in the world but not of the world, right? We need to be, there should be unbelieving people that we have relationships with. We should be in a place as believers in Jesus Christ where we're not, you know, isolating ourselves on this little Christian island, you know, where, where we only associate with those who believe the same thing that we do. Don't get me wrong tonight. We 100% should be surrounded by believing brothers and sisters. But we are also simultaneously called to be a light in the world. How will they ever know? How will they ever know unless they hear? I'm not saying to you tonight that you should call your friends up after the service and say, hey, I know you guys are going to the strip club tonight, and I learned in my Bible that I need to be hanging with you guys, so what time and where? I'm on my way. No, you're not. No, you're not on your way. That's not what I'm saying. I mean, you need to be wise in your decisions. Don't put yourself in the position where you're going to be tempted to sin. Don't do something that you know God would not want you to do. But also, don't be in a place where there's this religious self-righteousness that causes you to marginalize people who are the object of the love of Jesus Christ. 
Matthew was ready. Man, Matthew was ready. And he was not only ready, but he invited his friends to meet Jesus. And just as a side note tonight, I would encourage you, if you have experienced the power and the love of Jesus Christ, you have a message to your unbelieving friends to do the same. He was criticized for associating with the wrong crowd. And uh, you may be criticized as well as you reach out to those who the church has rejected. Verse 18 The third thing is this, he was criticized for not following other people's traditions. The scripture says in verse 18, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskin, or else the new wine bursts, the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined." But new wine must be put into new wineskins. So the next controversy and criticism that Jesus faces is in regards to this issue, this traditional issue of fasting. Now listen, um, it's evident that John the Baptist or the baptizer and the Pharisees had a you know, tradition, a consistent and similar tradition of fasting. So you say, well, what is fasting? Fasting fundamentally is denying yourself. It's self-denial. It's self-abnegation. And it's self-abnegation for the purpose of drawing near to God. Instead of feeding on food and feeding the physical flesh, you are feeding on the Spirit of God. You're drawing near to Him. Uh, You have the opportunity, the deeper opportunity to engage in spiritual warfare. Your soul is satisfied as you are focusing on praying and fasting. And fundamentally, that happens when we're fasting from food. Now, as you study the scriptures, of course, there are times where, like Jesus fasted from food and water. You have Daniel who fasted from certain types of food. Um, And then, of course, sometimes you'll hear the encouragement to fast from television or to fast from your phone. And I think that, you know, that for sure can be good if those things have, you know, really gotten a foothold in our lives in an unhealthy way. But when we're talking about fasting, for the, for the most part, we're talking about denying ourselves food so that we can feed on the Spirit of God. There was a tradition for John's uh, disciples and then also the Pharisees that they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And so everybody knew this, right? I mean, it was evident to everybody. Oftentimes, you know, they made a big deal out of their fasting because, you know, they would kind of wear it on their face so that everybody would know how religious they were. And so Jesus was criticized because his disciples were not following this tradition, You know, Monday would roll around and there Jesus is hanging out with his disciples and they've got hummus and pita and falafel and man, they're having a good time. And and the other disciples of of John and the Pharisees are, you know, they're starving and looking at the food and they're like, man, how come you get to do this and I don't get to do this? Why is there a difference? Why are you not following the tradition that we have laid out? And Jesus explains it in very beautiful terms, right? Because he is the bridegroom. He likens the whole situation to a a wedding. And remember, a wedding was a time of joy when the bridegroom had surprised the bride and the bridesmaids. He had come on the scene at an unexpected time. They had been waiting patiently. And then, of course, as he is Come, there's a a seven-day celebration where there's just absolute joy. And Jesus likens himself to the bridegroom. He says, hey, you know, essentially, this is not a time of self-abnegation and sorrow and self-affliction because the bridegroom, the Messiah, has come on the scene. There is coming a time when the bridegroom leaves that these disciples will be in a place of self-denial and they will be fasting, but now is not the time. That particular tradition does not apply to this moment. And you know, it's, it's even 
more than that, right? Because they were looking at this tradition, and in fact, this tradition was keeping them from experiencing this profound new work that God was doing. You know, let me say tonight that traditions can stand in the way of what God wants to do. And this is why Jesus goes into this illustration they would have all been familiar with. He's like, hey, you know when you got that pair of jeans that you love uh, and they've got a, a rip or a hole, if you take a piece of unshrunk garment and you sew it onto that old pair of jeans, well, the moment that you wash it, because that, that unshrunk piece of garment that you've so, sewn on hasn't had the opportunity to shrink, when you wash it, it's going to rip, it's going to tear because it doesn't work like that. If you have jeans uh, that have not been shrunk, then you can for sure piece, place a piece of unshrunken garment on it. But if the jeans have been shrunken, this by the way is my paraphrase in modern terms. If the jeans have been shrunk, you can't place that uh, new piece of garment on it because it will tear away. Similar way with the wineskin, you've got this old wineskin. It's kind of brittle. You know, it's inflexible, uh, it's, it's, it's unbendable. Well, if you put new wine in that wineskin, that fermenting process is still happening. And so because it, in the fermenting process, expels oxygen or carbon dioxide, what's going to happen to that wineskin, as you put the new wine in, it is going to expand. And if you put the new wine in the old wineskin, Ultimately, because it's brittle, it's inflexible, you know, it's not malleable, it can't change, it's unwilling to change, it's settled in its state, it's unwavering in its condition, ultimately it is going to burst and you're going to find yourself in a place where that new wine is spilled everywhere. And so what in the world is he saying? He's saying this, listen, these traditions that you have set up and institutionalized, this new thing that I am doing, there is no way to fit this new thing within the traditions that you have established. You know, probably one of the worst things that we could ever say as we're following God or maybe leading ministries is this. Well, this is the way we've always done it. And since this is the way we've always done it, this is the way that we're going to continue to do it. And if you say that, you will put yourself in a position where you will miss the moving of the Spirit of God. Because religious traditions can't contain the new work that God desires to do. You will see that new work happening in other people's lives. And you will criticize them because they're not following the traditions that you have established almost to the same level as the Word of God. You know, what a sad thing to think that some of these people had been anticipating the coming of the Messiah, but because they were so settled in what they thought to be the only way that God could work, they completely missed it. What a sad thing to think. I was listening to, to Pastor Chuck talk about this, and, and you know, he said something I, that I thought was really profound. You know, he said the hippie movement, right, could not be contained by the settled religious system at the time. And so what did God have to do? God had to raise up churches. He had to raise up this new work so that he could do this new thing. And then he went on to say, God, help us not to become so settled that we say somewhere down the road about Calvary Chapel, this is the way that it has to be done. He said, worse than that, I hope no one ever says, well, Chuck did it this way. Chuck did it this way, so, so since Chuck did it this way, or because Calvary did it this way, this is the way we have to do it. You know, the fact is this, our roots, our roots are in a movement that was willing to be flexible with the moving of God's Holy Spirit. And we will never put tradition above the moving of God's Spirit. You say, well, how do I know whether or not my tradition is something that I should cling on to fervently as if it is at the same level as God's word. I want to give you a couple of, of um, ways to evaluate whether or not you should be hanging on so tightly to your tradition. Number one is this, is there a direct connection to the teachings of Christ? Can you take the thing that you're doing and directly connect it with what Jesus said? I'm not talking about, about a tangential uh, connection. I'm not talking about, well, Jesus said this, and so based on the implication of what Jesus said, I'm not saying that. 
I'm saying, did he say it in a way where you know that it is a command that he has called you to observe? And if the answer is no, then you should yield whatever that thing is to the new thing that God desires to do. How does it, second thing is this, how does it relate to the overall teaching of the scripture? And so whatever we do as practice in our life that may fit in fit within the realm of tradition, we need to look at the gospel accounts, and then we also need to look at the epistles, and we need to look at the book of Revelation. Do we find those things conveyed clearly in those scriptures? The third thing is this, we should also be considering the church over the ages of church history, and we should be thinking about how this tradition impacts people. Um, because there were traditions that, that these individuals, John the Baptist disciples and the Pharisees, there were traditions that were being held up in such a way that the impact on the people was negative. And so I'm saying to you tonight, as we evaluate our lives and we evaluate our traditions, we want to find ourselves in a place where if it's not a direct connection to the teachings of Christ, if it is not conveyed in the epistles and the book of Revelation, if it is in conflict or something that had an ebb and flow in church history or is holding back what God desires to bring to people, those are things you need to deconstruct. Those are things you need to deconstruct. You deconstruct those things. You tear those traditions down. Get yourself back to a place where you are rooted fundamentally on just what the Bible says. And then you will experience a new work of God's Holy Spirit. I think we need to be open to the new work of God's Spirit in our life and as a church. And I think if we're in a place, listen, you know, I, I love the historical aspect of this for the old wineskin. Because, you know, the truth is this. If you're an old wineskin tonight, um, you know, the resolution to your old wineskinness is not to throw you out. You know, what they would do to the old wineskin is they would soak it in oil, right? They would take this brittle, you know, unyielding, unbending, nasty. No, I'm just kidding. Not nasty. But, but you know, just, just unyielding thing. And they would soak it in oil, and as it was soaked in oil, it became flexible again. And, and tonight, I'm talking about the oil of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about being in a place where we just let the Spirit of God saturate our hearts so that we can be in a place where that new thing that He desires to do can be contained within our lives. Final thing tonight, verse 23. You guys with me? Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the grains, the heads of grain, excuse me. And the Pharisees said to him, look, criticism number four was that he cared more about people than following the rules. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, have you never read don't you guys read your Bibles? Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. I don't have time tonight to really unpack, and we'll talk about the Sabbath more later. This was a, a major issue between Jesus and the religious leaders. I don't have time tonight to unpack what they had done to the Sabbath, you know, the fourth commandment in the Decalogue, and how they had added literally hundreds of laws, not God-made laws, but man-made laws to this original command, and then had placed themselves uh, in the position of those who enforced the rules. So they would watch how other people behaved on the Sabbath, and they would make sure they were rule enforcers. I pray tonight that we don't have a bunch of rule enforcers gathered here among God's people, but they were rule enforcers, and they had shifted the whole purpose of the Sabbath. Remember, the purpose of Sabbath was rest, was worship, and renewal. And this really is what Jesus is saying when he was saying that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And yet they criticized him. I mean, every angle that they could get something up on Jesus, man, they came at him from. 
And what does he do? Well, he goes back to the word, the very thing that we ought to do as well. And he proves that in the moment of need, mercy triumphs over the law. Some of you are rule followers tonight, and that's just a hard thing for you to get your head around. You know, even when there, there is a need for someone to experience mercy and help, you are so committed to the rules that you can't even find it within the capacity of your personality to, to break a rule for the purpose. And I'm not for sure tonight saying that we just have the liberty at our own discretion to break any rule that God has laid out. Obviously, that's not what Jesus is saying, and that's not what I'm saying either. But to be in a place where we are so sensitive to the needs of others that we recognize that mercy needs to triumph, that mercy needs to be victorious in the moment. This is precisely what Jesus is saying, that human need triumphs the nuances of the ceremonial law and tradition. And what's sad here is that these religious leaders had totally missed the point of the purpose of the Sabbath, and they were using it as a way to hurt other people. I want to encourage you tonight, listen, obviously there's a direct application for that. Before I get to it, I want to remind you that there is wisdom in observing the Sabbath. All right, there is wisdom in observing the Sabbath. In fact, I would encourage you over the next four weeks just to have a day where you cease from your works and you rest in the Lord. You find yourself in a place where you have shut everything else off and you have opened up your Bible and you are spending a day reflecting on all that God has done for you and you're allowing the Spirit of God to refresh you and to, new, to, to renew you because you know we live in a culture that goes 120 miles an hour. Sometimes, man, we just need to find ourselves in a place where we have pushed pause and we are resting in the Lord. And then in addition to that, I would say, don't ever forget that Jesus, the Son of Man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is greater than, than David. And he is present here tonight. Maybe this evening you need that refreshing, you need that renewal. Maybe tonight your life is burdened because you're a rule follower. And you know you've approached God as if he is just this monster in the sky, making sure and enforcing that you have followed every single rule that he has carried, that he has called you to carry out. And you know you're in a place where you are just, um, you, you've spiritually withered under that perspective of God. And tonight he wants to refresh you, he wants to renew you, he loves you not because you keep the rules, but because you've put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. You belong to God, you're his son or his daughter, and he takes pleasure in you because you are the apple of his eye. Listen, be willing to walk in the ways of Jesus, but remember, when you do, there will be people in the religious world that will criticize you. We love you so much, Lord, and we're thankful tonight for your word, thankful that you speak to us and that we can just consider the beauty of your life and we can learn and, and not just learn things about you, but we can be refreshed by you and renewed. And God, we pray tonight that there would be that sweet work of your spirit in this place that would bring the spiritual renewal that's needed. God, the hope where there's discouragement and self-condemnation. Father, I pray tonight that uh, for those of us maybe who have just held back following you because, because we're hanging on to something this world has to offer us, tonight I pray would be the night that those in this room are just loosed from that inconsequential issue. And that they would discover their fulfillment and life in you. Tonight as their eyes are closed and just as we're wrapping up this evening in prayer. Maybe tonight you've never put your trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We talk, talked a lot about Matthew tonight and, and just how he was willing. He was willing to leave it all behind. And he didn't allow himself to be put in a position where something that the world had to offer still had power and control over his life. Today, God wants you, if, if this is you, you know there is something in your life that 
that still has its clutches in you. You're held by this thing, and tonight you need to be freed. You need to be released. And you can be released tonight as you make the choice to follow Jesus with all of your heart, to to leave it all behind, to be all in, to give him everything, to place your whole life without reservation in his hands, and to trust that as you do, he's going to bring He's going to bring what you need. He's more than enough. Tonight, if you need to take that step of faith, and, and maybe, maybe God has been speaking to you for some time about this, tonight is the night. Tonight you need to choose. Tonight you need to say yes. Tonight you need to step away from these unhealthy and toxic cycles in your life, and you need to really let the Lord do all that he is desired to do and so this evening as our eyes are closed our heads are bowed if this is you tonight i'm going to invite you just to raise your hand i want to pray for you tonight you know you need to put your trust and faith in jesus christ would you stretch your hand up high so i can pray for you god bless you and you thank you and i see your hand that's awesome so good back here on my right and i see your hand as well over here thank you so much man he loves you he loves you He's present here. God bless you. Thank you for raising your hand. And you you raise your heart to him as you raise your hand. He's a faithful God who is present to supply to you exactly what you need as you have the courage tonight to take this step of faith. Anybody else? Thank you. I see your hand. Maybe tonight as a Christian, I see your hand too. Thank you. Maybe tonight as a Christian, you know, you just, there's that need that you have this evening for renewal. Maybe you've been under under the law and under tradition. You know, it it is really, it is really spiritually left you dry. And tonight you need to to lay down those traditions. You need to be that new wineskin. You need to be soaked in the oil of God's Holy Spirit. Tonight, if this is you, I want to pray for you. Would you stretch your hand up high? All right, thank you. Thank you. See your hands. Awesome, thank you so much. It's good, so good. Thank you. You can put your hands down. And Father, we love you, God. We're so thankful for these tonight that, that God, you have spoken. You have spoken. You've demonstrated the authority and power of your word. And your word has reached these hearts. We pray, Holy Father, that tonight there would just be the outpouring of your love and mercy and power and grace upon them as they choose to step forward in faith and to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together tonight. Sam and the worship team are going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And, and, and listen, for those of you who have raised your hands, uh, I want to lead you in a prayer tonight. It's good that I prayed for you, but tonight you need, you need to do what Matthew did. You need to stand up, you need to leave it all behind, and you need to choose to follow Jesus. And so as Sam leads us tonight, I want to invite you, if you raised your hand, I want to invite you to come forward tonight to stand next to one of our follow-up leaders. Tonight, if you're a believer in Christ and you know you raised your hand because you need that refreshing of God's Holy Spirit, I want to lead you in prayer too. And so this invitation is for you as well. For all of you who have raised your hands, come on forward tonight, stand next to one of our leaders, and uh, I'm going to lead you in a prayer this evening. So, So you can bow your heads this evening. And uh, you repeat this prayer out loud after me and, and pray with all of your heart to the Father. Father, tonight, I love you and I thank you for loving me. Tonight, I'm making the choice to leave the world behind, to leave my sin behind, to leave my unbelief behind, and to follow Jesus. I believe he died for me and that he rose again and I receive your forgiveness and I receive your grace and I receive your power and I receive your love 
In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Give him praise, people.